I, um, I wonder if you'd pray with me. Um, I was, yeah, I was thinking how I'm feeling right now. I feel a wee bit um, flustered from this week. Um, my fiance, Libby, I don't know if you know her, but she's been in hospital this week and is still in hospital. And so time that I'd normally prepare for a sermon, I've been a bit distracted and even now feel a bit distracted. Um, and wonder if you'd pray with me as we come and open God's word that God would still speak to us and use me today to speak to us as a church. So would you please pray with me? Lord God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the time of worship we can have this morning. Um, Lord, thank you that in all those songs there was mention of the cross, and I just thank you for the cross, Lord, that we can come today and worship and be holy and blameless before you, Lord, that we can come and be right with you because of that. And one thing I'd like to ask this morning, Lord, is that we as a church would walk away from here with a fresh just appreciation for the cross or an understanding of it, Lord, and a thankfulness for it. Um, even if we've come years and years and heard the cross every week, Lord, would you just stir in our hearts to um, appreciate that even more, Lord. Um, as we come to open your word, um, you know how I feel, Lord. You know even what my week's been like and the weakness I have right now as I come and speak. And I ask that you help me up here, Lord, um, that as we open your word as a church, Lord, your spirit would speak to us and convict us and you would speak through me, Lord. I look at teaching in the New Testament and it seems like when people taught, they taught your very words and as if you, as if you spoke through them. And so I want to ask this morning that you'd speak through me um, to meet the needs of us as a church, Lord, um, to convict us where we need convicting, Lord, and encourage us where we need encouraging. Um, so please be at work this morning, I pray. Amen. Amen. Um, we as a church have been going through First Samuel, so you can turn there if you'd like. First Samuel chapter nine, uh, 18 and 19. Samuel's a great book because it seems like every week that we've had the sermon, there's been a hard issue that's been a challenge. Um, it's no different today. We're looking at the issue of jealousy. Um, jealousy is interesting because it's something that can be good, but something that can also be bad. Um, throughout the Old Testament, God's character is described as someone who is jealous that he is a jealous God. He even says that his name is jealousy. Um, and when it's a righteous jealousness, it's a jealousness to protect something um, that's worth protecting. A zeal, um, if I can find it here, a zeal to preserve something that is extremely precious. Um, and the picture of God's jealousy is perhaps similar to the picture of um, a husband and a wife, so, so I have a fiance, Libby. If someone else came and tried to steal her affections and I did nothing about it and I was not jealous over her, I think you would really question my love for her. Um, I think the right response for me is to be jealous over her and to want to protect that because that's something very precious. It's something that's worth being protected. Um, in the same way, God, when he's talked about as being jealous, it's often in the Old Testament in relation to when the Israelites have rejected him or have gone after other gods. Um, in Exodus, when he's said that his name is jealous, it's when the Israelites have made the golden calf and Moses has apparently gathered the gold and it's just popped up, but he's actually fashioned it. Um, when that happens, God says his name is jealous because he's jealous for the affection of his people. Um, and so jealousy can be a praiseworthy thing, but what we see today in this passage is a sinful kind of jealousy. 
And that's when it doesn't come from protecting something worth protecting, but it comes from envy, from spite, from frustration, from covetousness, and ultimately it stems from our own pride. Um, that's what we see here in the story. And so we come to Saul. Um, a bit of a recap. Uh, in the chapter previously, David has defeated Goliath, so he's entered the scene. Um, he is in the service of King Saul, so he plays the liar for him because Saul gets these fits of rage or this um, harmful spirits. And so Saul, uh, David plays the liar for him and it calms him down. And we're told that David um, was made as his armor bearer and Saul loved him as his own. So Saul appreciates him, loves him, and brings him into his service as his armor bearer. And in chapter 18 and verse 5, we see that David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. Uh, what that means is he set him over the uh, leading the men who went out to fight specifically with the dangerous missions. Um, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And so what happened is David has gone out to war and he's having success. And one day when he's returning from battle, the woman of the city starts singing a song. Uh, so what would often happen is when people went out for war and they returned, the woman would sing the victory songs. But the song that they sing this time is that Saul has struck his thousands, but David has struck his ten thousands. Um, you can sort of imagine Saul being annoyed when they hear the people singing again and again these two lines and wanting them to just stop singing it, stop pointing out that David's better. Um, and, and there's actually more behind it because they would only sing of the king. So the fact that David is mentioned here shows that he is a contender for the throne. And the fact that he is given 10 times more credit than Saul shows how the people view him. And so Saul's response in verse 8 is that he's first of all very angry because the saying displeases him. And he says, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So, so he starts to realize that he might be losing the kingdom to David. And bear in mind here that he also remembers that God's rejected him from the king, king, kingdom, being a king. Um, it's the next verse, though, where the problems comes, because his next response is that Saul eyed David from that day on. Uh, some of your translations might even say that Saul eyed David jealously from that day on. Um, and the idea of eyeing someone, I like that picture, um, reminded me of when I was with my brothers growing up, and you're very careful to notice exactly what they're getting. And I remember a time when Jonah got like two more chips than me or something, and I told Dad, <laughs> I said, it's not fair. I think Dad's response was, well, sometimes life's not fair, so he's put up with it. But I, I eyed him, and I'd notice when he'd get something I didn't, very, very closely. Um, and so Saul eyes David from that day on, notices everything that he gets, and that's where the jealousy starts to come. And in fact, the very next day, we see that a spirit comes on him. So in verse 10, the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Literally, a spirit comes on him of jealousy so strong that he's raving in his house, so consumed with this jealousy that he acts out and seeks to murder David. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David. Notice this, he was afraid because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. 
So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. Notice his fear has gone from just being afraid to now being in fearful awe. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. So it is here that Saul tries a different technique. He starts to use his daughters. So he offers his oldest daughter to David in marriage in the hope that in asking for a bride price, um, David will go out and the Philistines will kill him. So David says, rather than my hand being against him, I'll let the Philistines be against him. Only he doesn't follow through with this because his oldest daughter he gives to someone else, but he realizes that his next daughter, or another daughter, Michael, um, loved David. So Saul says, well, you can marry Michael, but I'm going to ask you for a bride price. Um, when reading this, I was very grateful when I went to Mr. Hannah that he didn't ask a bride price like this, because what he asks is a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was actually very grateful when I read that. Um, <laughs> David does go out and gets 200 foreskins and so is able to marry Michael. So again, he succeeds and Saul's jealousy grows. In verse 28 of chapter 18, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's David, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And from here on, his jealousy consumes him. And I'd say that the end of Saul's um, record in here is um, marked by his jealousy for David. Um, he tries to conspire with Jonathan to go and kill him. He then goes to David's house and seeks to kill him, but David escapes. And it's just this journey of, David, of Saul trying to kill David out of jealousy. I want to ask you, um, and if these stay up, I should really have got a folder. Um, how do you view jealousy? How do you view selfish ambition or pride or what we see here? Because I wonder if there's a thing where we view that as maybe a lesser sin than others, as maybe not so significant, not so dangerous. Um, I, I want to take us to the New Testament and let that speak to what we see in this story here. Um, because there are some strong words in the New Testament for how it speaks about jealousy. So in Galatians, it talks about the fruits of the Spirit you don't have to turn there, I can just read it briefly. Describing the works of the flesh, it says that the works of the flesh are evident. There's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And I wonder if we, we view those as worse, but listen to the next part of the list. Envy, oh, sorry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness and organies. And things like these, I warned you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we sort of see all of them here, and we're focusing maybe on jealousy, but you see it play these other things, the selfish ambition, the pride, fits of anger, the envy, the dissension. Um, listen to how James describes it, because he goes even further. He talks about wisdom that comes from above. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But listen to this. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. 
This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. If you have bitter jealousy and if you have selfish ambition in your heart, it is earthly, it is unspiritual, and demonic. And I don't think we realize that when we harbor those thoughts of jealousy or harbor those thoughts of ambition or pride. And I wonder if that is what we see pictured when the harmful spirit comes upon Saul, um, is that, that demonic activity that we see where it just consumes him and causes him to act out in murder, murder, attempted murder. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And that's what we see in Saul's story. Disorder right the way through vile practice. It leads him to going. In his pursuit of David, he literally goes to the priests and kills 85 of them in an attempt to be able to get David. And so I want to ask you some questions. Because I I think Saul's story shows the seriousness of it, and you see in the New Testament the the seriousness of it. So I want to ask you, is there anyone in your life that you are jealous of? Are you jealous of what someone has, someone's property, someone's money, someone's family, someone who's worked less hard than you and yet gets more recognition? Are you jealous of someone's abilities um, because David was more capable than Saul and that's where the jealousy came from? Are you jealous of how someone gets praised by people? Um, Saul's jealousy came when the people were praising uh, David and they weren't praising Saul. Are you jealous of someone who is more popular, more loved, more respected, more admired, someone who people ask advice for more than they ask from you? When you feel you deserve these things more than they do, maybe someone who is higher up the social hierarchy than you. Saul was jealous because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. Is there someone who you see God working through in a greater way than he's working through you, using him Um, in pastoral care, in leadership, in ministry, using him to care for people, and are you jealous of that? Is there someone who has a faith or relationship with God that you admire but at the same time are jealous of? And do you notice how through the story it says that Saul got more and more afraid of David? Is there someone that you're afraid of because they're threatening to take your position in leading ministry? Or perhaps they're, they're offered a role that you think you would be better suited for? Um, And even though you know God has gifted them, because you're not getting what they're getting, you're jealous of them. I want to ask you if that's you. And um, as I I was thinking about jealousy, um, I went and checked with a couple of older people to make sure that it's not something you just grow out of and it's something when you're younger you struggle with more. And they said, no, jealousy is always close to the surface. And they said that in their experience, they've seen people consumed by jealousy for long periods of time, as Saul was. And they've even seen it to the point where they've been disqualified from ministry or disqualified from being used by God because it's consumed them. And so I see from it just this very, very serious warning um, to examine yourself and not boast and be false to the truth. And even if I was to be honest with you, seems like I always get a text that I'm the one challenged with first when I read it and sort of have to deal with it or look at it because you're preaching on it. Um, and as I've been thinking over the last couple of months, a lot of these questions relate to me and my jealousy towards people. 
and I was thinking about what to bring as application or where to, where to go from here, and there are a lot of different things I saw in places, but there's one that I'd like to go to, and that's a passage in Philippians 2, and I would like you to turn there, because that's where I'd like to be for a bit. And it's maybe not the expected place to go from here, but it's one that for me I've kept coming back to and found has been dealing with my jealousy or my pride and selfish ambition. Um, It's the Christ hymn in chapter 2, and it's a passage that a lot of you are likely familiar with, and I want to ask that you don't let your familiarity with it dull you to the challenge that it gives. Um, It's written to the church in Philippi, so this is a church in a Roman colony of, of Philippi and could be likened to a church in our Western culture. And Paul's writing and he's talking about Um, not looking out for your own interests, but looking out for the interests of others and having the mindset of Christ Jesus. And then he goes into this hymn that describes Christ and what he does. So in verse 6, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He starts by saying that though Jesus was in the form of God, the word form Uh, outward appearance, perhaps suggestive of the the outward glory that God has. So so Jesus shared in that, and I don't know what you think of when you think of the glory of God. I I think of the sun firstly and how you look at it and it's unapproachable. Um, That's what Paul uses to describe God in Timothy, unapproachable light. I think of the glory I see when I see a sunset or see something in nature that just takes your breath away and you just have to look at it and admire it. Um, And I think God's glory is going to far surpass any of that because you see instances in the Old Testament where people meet God and they see God, Moses, Isaiah, Job, and they literally fall on their face and worship God. That's their response to the glory of God. And it's saying that Jesus had this. He was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So so he's equal with God. Everything that you think of about God, Jesus had, but he did not consider it something to be grasped. And I love that picture of that word grasped, holding on to it, not letting go. He didn't consider it something to hold on to. But what he did instead is he emptied himself. Um, Your translation might say that he made himself nothing. Uh, It's the idea of pouring out a flask or a bottle until it's empty. So emptying yourself, made himself nothing by taking the form of a slave. Notice that it's the same word here. So he goes from the form of God to the form of a slave. The form of the glory of God with all the glory that comes with it to the form of a slave. And the church in Philippi would have known the glory that's associated with a slave. Nothing. Literally, that's like the highest drop. And that's what Paul uses to describe the The lowering Christ did when he went from being God himself to taking on human form. But he doesn't stop there because while Jesus was found in human form, he then continued and he humbled himself. That word humbled is this word tapinos in Greek. And it means to be of low social status. It means to make yourself so lowly that you are 
unable to cope, to be undistinguished and to be of no account. This is to humble yourself to the lowest position possible. And it's saying that Jesus had already lowered himself so far, humbled himself again by becoming obedient to death. And then it goes one step further, even death on a cross. And I think we lose the impact of that in our culture because we hear the cross so much. But for a church in Philippi to hear the cross, that would have just had all the associations of the horror of it when they hear that word. Okay, this is Jesus lowering himself to the lowest position possible. And if you look at the cross and look at what Jesus went through, think of in the garden where he's praying and he's in such agony as he thinks about the cross and yet he still goes and gets, allows himself to get handed over to the soldiers. They come, they take him, they beat him, they mock him, they spit on him, they, they blindfold him, and they're standing around him, hitting him and saying, prophesy to us, who hit you that time? That they beat him and they whipped him with whips that would come round and claw the skin so that he's left bleeding and broken and disfigured. And a lot of people would die in that stage and not even be able to go on to crucifixion. And yet Jesus is still alive. He gets um, condemned to crucifixion by Pilate. A crown of thorns is placed on his head. He's forced to carry his cross through the streets. And people looking would look on and know crucifixion and know the shame as they look at him. And that's what they'd feel, the shame that he's in. And then he's taken up to Golgotha. And this is a public place, and he's put on that piece of wood, that cross, and he's nailed to it. With nails put in one hand, and then the other, and then in his feet. And he's left to hang up there. To hang for people, people to see. It's a public death, and it's a form of execution designed so that when people are standing around looking at him, his image of him is so distorted, so disfigured, so horrific that people's memory of him is completely lost because all they can think of is that picture up there now in the shame. Um, Isaiah says that his uh, form was so disfigured beyond human resemblance um, and his form marred beyond human likeness. A form of execution designed to so utterly ruin the image of that person that they um, are brought to nothing and literally brought to subhuman, not even human, not even regarded as a human. That's how low Jesus went. And I, I read that and I realize that and that just convicts of all the pride in me <laughs> when you think of what Jesus, the Lord of glory, gave up to go down there. And if you think of the comparison with Saul, Saul's grasping for his kingdom, Saul's grasping for the praise of people. Jesus is here worthy of all praise from every single person, worthy of a position that's not even rivaled. He doesn't have to do, he can keep that. And yet he humbles himself, he lowers it, he doesn't grasp it, he empties himself. And, and, and this is a theological passage, but Paul uses it here as an applicational passage. Um, it's the main thrust of his letter, and it's written to the church so that they would grow in love for one another. So back up in verse 3, 
his command. This is why he writes it here, because he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Again, you see selfish ambition here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Do you realize that's the same word that's used for Jesus to pinos? means to be of low social status, to have an inability to cope, to be lowly, undistinguished, and of no account. Paul exhorts the church to be humble and gives the example of Jesus to know what that actually means so that they would not look to their own interests but to the interests of others and they would count others as more significant than themselves. I want to ask you, do you seriously do that when you talk with people? Regard them as greater than yourself, not just put on the appearance of regarding them as greater than yourself, but literally lower yourself and put to death your own desires or things you're grasping for and seek to truly view them as greater than yourself. As I read that, I'm like, that seems so far away from me. (laughs) Seems so hard to do, and yet that's what Paul exhorts us to do, to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. And that's what I see as the solution to the problem. Well, the, the opposite to what we see Saul doing all the way through. And, and so my, my challenge is for you to consider jealousy and consider selfish ambition and pride in your own life because it is a very, very serious thing and Saul shows us the consequences of it. And my challenge for you to go away and do is think about this passage and consider Christ. Because when we consider Christ, there is no excuse for us to have that in us because we follow, us, follow a Lord who humbled himself for our sake and he humbled himself for sinners, for those who would reject him. And if we think we have an excuse to be jealous, think of who Jesus did it for. Um, and, and I challenge you to go away and continue thinking about this passage and begin praying it over. And if there's someone you are jealous for, begin praying for them because it's very hard to wish harm on someone when you are praying for them. It's very hard to harbor thoughts of jealousy while you're also praying for their well-being. And maybe jealousy for you today is not an issue in your life, but I would challenge you that selfish ambition is always something that is there. Our hearts always go to pride and so examine that. And maybe jealousy for you is not the issue, but if selfish ambition is there, go away and consider Christ. Let that um, transform your mind and continually challenge you to go make yourself lower and lower in your relationships with other people. I'd like to pray again. Lord God, um, Lord, we don't even know how much you humbled yourself, how much you lost when you came to that cross. Um, again, just pray that you give us a new, just an understanding of how much you gave up when you gave, came to that cross. That you did it for us and that it would just so convict our hearts, so challenge our hearts and lead us, Lord, to be people who are humble, who don't let selfish ambition dwell in our hearts, who put to death jealousy and envy and covetousness because we follow you as Lord, who humbled yourself and set the example for us to follow. I just pray, Lord, that your spirit would convict us where we need convicting. Don't let us harden our hearts to this, but may we do something. Um, And I thank you, Lord, as we come to a time of remembering communion, Lord, I thank you that the reason we are all here is because you did humble yourself and make yourself so low. And that's the reason we can be here. And Lord, we glorify you and praise you for that. Um, Amen.